Good morning, Pennington AG Church. Good morning, all of you getting psyched for the next week of kids camp and block party next week. There are a lot of exciting things this summer. What's really exciting this morning is our exegetical walk through Romans chapter 9. Amen? Yeah, we are walking through Romans for the summer, and we are into Romans 9. We are moving into, for chapters 9 through 11, Paul moves into kind of a side theme to move his larger point forward about community and about those who have influence and those who don't, and the Jewish tradition and the freedom of those outside of that tradition called by Christ. But I want to begin this morning by talking about the American pastime of dodgeball. I was youth pastor for six years, and at one point I was also our um, Assemblies of God rep for youth ministry in part of central New Jersey. And so I would run a winter retreat every year. And we thought for the evening, you kind of kind of lose the energy of the group. And so the, my predecessor in the role came up with the idea of doing late night dodgeball. And it was a smashing success to the point where I might say it became a problem on the other side that winter retreat was like we have a bunch of services that kind of did in order so that we can get to dodgeball on Saturday night. And people would have themes and the, the different youth groups would dress up in costumes and wear like war paint for dodgeball. It got so bad that I wrote into a contract that would go out to all of the youth pastors about sportsmanship and how we would run it. And I had a little verse at the bottom where I reinterpreted Jesus' encouragement where it said, but what good is it for a youth group to gain the dodgeball championship but forfeit their soul? Winter retreat interpretation. Um, I was like, just come. People would lie. It's very easy to lie in dodgeball, and we all maybe have struggled with that moral conundrum ourselves, whether it hit you or didn't. It brushed my shirt. I don't know. That's between you and God. But in doing dodgeball on winter retreats, there was actually even, it reminded me of one worse aspect of playing games like this. And this is the dreaded role of someone being team captain and picking teams. And who would get picked first? Who would get picked last? An aspect of my own athleticism is maybe a claim to fame. I've never been picked last. I've never been picked first. But I always get picked somewhere in the middle, which I think is very helpful for my self-esteem. I'm not built up. I'm not slammed. If you are that guy or woman who gets picked first, you also know the drill of trying to be kind of fake humble throughout it, and you're like kind of in the back of the group, and you're like, oh, and they're like, I'm going to pick Rick first for soccer this year, and you're like, oh, me? Oh, yeah, I just happen to have my uniform on, and I have cleats on, and I've been jogging in place, but you're going to pick me first? The worst part is if you are aware that there is a possibility that you would be the one picked last. And that little pit in your stomach, maybe you're great at other sports, but now it's basketball, and you're not very good there, and you're wondering, am I going to be the one picked last? As youth pastor, as watching dodgeball happen, I would watch these dynamics play out. Famously, there's still one, he's now 30, and still talks about this from about 14 years ago, that our team was very good one year, and so good at dodgeball winter retreat. That we had two teams, and we had a bunch of really strong high school guys on our one team. And so we made an A team and a B team. And yes, I hear how that sounds. So what I did was, I said, all right, you can make an A team of all of the strong guys and athletic girls, but the B team is going to get all of the youth leaders 
I'm going to play on that team. All the youth leaders will be on the B team. And you can make your strong A team, but the youth leaders will be on the B team. He still to this day blames me that our team, A team, lost the championship because I stole all of the leaders. And I said, but you didn't forfeit your soul, man. He still, it's 14 years, he's 30, and he still remembers and tells me about this story. But I ruined our chances of bringing home the trophy. Um, That wasn't my job. In being picked last, I have watched, when the person is picked last, I have watched where both teams decided and agreed that the last person wouldn't go to either team, and they would do the dreaded role of, you're the ref, or you're the cheerleader for this game, cheering on, because it wouldn't be fair for one team to have more than the other, and you watch that kind of gross dynamic play out. As I'm sharing this story, you may have your own memories of maybe being that guy or that girl who picked those teams, or of being that person dreading being the last person picked. As we walk through Romans 9, Paul is addressing a topic and an issue that is very relevant to this feeling of whether we're selected or not. It's a famous chapter, talks about whether God chooses or doesn't choose, who he chooses, and how it works. There are three famous theological ideas Paul's rolling out. Do we choose God or does God choose us? Fancy people call this election. And if it's God choosing, how does he decide who he chooses? Is it based on merit, people that deserve it or don't? And finally, with Jesus, did God change his team from Israel to now Christianity? Fancy terms for this, replacement theology or supersessionism. Does he change his team? And then how do we know when God's changing his team or not? And who's on it? Who deserves it? Who doesn't? Two things Paul makes clear throughout chapter 9 of Romans. The Jews are God's chosen people. He chose to work through them. He's still choosing to work through them. Jesus as the Messiah is the culmination of those chosen people. And now a subset of those called are called further by calling on the name of Jesus. For those walking alongside of us, we're talking about Jewish and non-Jewish Christians in Rome, Paul lovingly writing them a letter to address unity through Jesus. And as we talk about who's in, who's out, who's chosen, who's not, we remember that this author is also the author of Galatians 3.28, that he writes to the church in Galatia, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus that it is Christ Jesus who is the great unifier, equalizer, drawler together of all of humanity. Let's walk through Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. With Christ as my witness, I speak with other truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. For my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters... I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them, and he gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned, that he is God, the one who rules over everything, 
and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we invite you to speak to us through this passage. Speak to us through this letter from Paul to the church in Romans. Speak to us today what is relevant for us to fall more in love with you, Jesus, and be obedient to that call. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. As you read this passage, one thing about Romans 9 is unfairly, this passage has been used throughout the last 2,000 years to practice anti-Semitism. Christians have done a lot of wrong in how they've treated God's chosen people, how they've treated the Jewish community, and they've used passages like Romans 9 as ways to say, well, now you're no longer, you're not a part of, you rejected Christ, and have used this to create a lot of harm and hate. In all four Gospels, it is clear the Jewish people don't kill Jesus. It is the Roman government that kills Jesus. They make it very clear. The Jews are not the enemies of the call of Christianity. I get the privilege to travel, um, and I love traveling around the world. And a few years ago, I was able to go to the Czech Republic, and in Prague specifically, the city of a thousand spires. You can see a million churches around the city. There's a Jewish quarter in Prague that you can visit. I have a few photos of the Jewish quarter in Prague. This is a a Jewish cemetery. They had such a specific region that they lived in that they were kind of limited to that literally their graves are piled on top of each other. So it's tombstone on top of tombstone on top of tombstone. It's not just because they were kind of put into one group. It's also that they were there for hundreds of years and it's built on top of each other. You can show the next one. Um, It's a beautiful synagogue, um, previously a synagogue. Um, And you can show the next one. This is maybe the most famous kind of image of a synagogue in in Prague. Um, They are not synagogues anymore. They are all 100% museums because there's no Jewish community in the city of Prague because it was wiped out from 1938 to 1945 during the Holocaust and during World War II. A community that had existed for 800 years, had lived through several persecutions, was finally completely wiped out. There's no sustainable Jewish community there. There's just a museum. As we walk through texts like Romans 9, as we walk through Scripture, we are seeking Jesus. We are seeking God's call for His church, and we are also working to be agents of love and reconciliation. We do not want to use Scripture as an instrument of persecution, as an instrument of hate. We do not want to see division in any sense of the world that Christ has called us to. Romans is a powerful gift for love and unity in Christ Jesus. It is not meant to divide. It is not meant to make others and categories of those outside. Paul is writing to his Jewish brothers and sisters. He's imploring them to follow Jesus. Paul famously is the apostle to the Gentiles. He goes outside of the Jewish community, but he still has a pattern that every city he goes to, he begins by going to the local synagogue, by going to the local temple where the Jews would meet and sharing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he finds is oftentimes frustration and argument, and then he moves into the Gentiles where there's a massive um, return and exponential growth in those coming to the gospel. But Paul's words here are powerful and emotional. He says, if I could take my faith in Jesus, if I could take the relationship I have with Christ Jesus and 
be eternally damned outside of his kingdom, if I could be separated from God forever, that I may lead my community of fellow Jews to Christ Jesus, I would make that exchange. I would trade my eternal life for theirs in an instant if I could do that. I would trade it all. This is the same Paul who writes in Philippians 3.8, I consider everything else in my life utter garbage, but for the relationship I have with Christ Jesus. That's how valuable his relationship with Jesus is. And he says he would give that up if he could lead the community he is from, his family he is a part of, the tradition he is born out of, into relationship with Jesus. That's how close to his heart it is. Unfortunately, if you've ever prayed for a loved one, a neighbor, a child, a parent, a sibling, you know that it is not a journey that you can force on another. We can't take our faith and make someone else believe it. We pray and trust that the Holy Spirit leads them. And I do think that Paul gives us a beautiful example of how to pray for others who don't know Jesus. That we pray out of humility, we grieve that they don't know Jesus, and we pray and trust that God can do the work that we can't. Paul has such a hunger for anyone who is outside of the kingdom that he's like, before we even argue about how each of us operates inside of the church, it is so crucial to prioritize and to remember that this is not a closed community of haves and those outside who have not. All of humanity is called to be a part of this, and I long that they would be in this community, know Christ Jesus. Each of us is placed in a community. You have a family that you are born out of. You have a community that you live in. I have the privilege to live, to preach, to pastor in the community that I am from. I grew up just 10 minutes down the road in Ewing. I've lived in Pennington for 12 years now. I am New Jersey through and through. I've said before, you cut my veins. I bleed marinara. I am New Jersey and I get to be here. And Christ has placed each of us into communities and cultures and homes where he says, these are the people that you love. Loving the most is advocating for them to know me, but you cannot browbeat someone into loving Jesus. You love them as Christ loved you. You pray and you trust that the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding them. And when the opportunities arise, you share what Christ Jesus has meant to you. That is Paul's formula of leading and saving those that God has placed around him. Continuing on, Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Well then, if we're praying for the Israelites, if God's working in them and it's not seeming to work, what does that mean? Has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? Nope. For not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be continued. Through Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year. And Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything, good or bad, she received a message from God. 
This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I have loved Jacob, but I have rejected Esau. You may have heard that verse as, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. Now this asks a question. When God chooses to work through people and those people do not fulfill what God has called them to, they fail to win as God's team or even be God's kingdom-minded people, does that mean God has failed? When God's community has failed, has God failed? It's a legitimate question Paul is trying to address. It's a legitimate question people still today have. As Paul's talking about the Israelite people in the Old Testament, we see kings who lead child sacrifices, Pharisees who manipulate and control, priests who abuse. We see in our modern day the same with church struggles, abuse of minors, pastors even in the news now who suppress abuse victims, churches that use their congregations as ways to get rich and make money. When this happens, does this reflect poorly on God? It's a legitimate, good question. In a practical sense, does it reflect poorly on God? Yes, absolutely. Every time I see another documentary about Hillsong or another church, I know it is going to reflect poorly on the Jesus whom I love because we've done all of this in his name and we've done a poor job of it. But Paul's asking theologically, actually, is it a reflection on God? And Paul says emphatically, no, this is not a reflection on God. It is a reflection on us and what we do with the things that God hands to us. All things, anything that is good. And Jewish thinkers of Paul's day would often make arguments by going back through Jewish history. That's how you would begin. You would tell the story, again, Adam to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, Moses to David, David to the prophets, the prophets to today. That's how they would tell a story and make an argument. That's what Paul is doing. When you read the letter of Romans, you see multiple times Paul does this. He goes all the way back, tells the story again. That is a traditional way that Jewish leaders and thinkers would argue. Paul shares that God's promise to Israel hasn't failed because the promise was not meant for every Israelite who was ethnically Jewish. It was meant for those who were called and were obedient and faithful to the covenant God made with Abraham and his people. When we use terms like Zionism or we talk about the ethnicity, we're missing the point of Scripture. That it is not about ethnicity and biology. It is about covenant promises and commitments together. And Paul makes this argument in the passage quite beautifully. He says, if it's about just being ethnically Abraham's children, then why does God choose Isaac and he doesn't choose Hagar's son? Why does he do that? And then you might say, well, because it's also Sarah. And so the right wife creates the right child. So, okay, we're back to biology. But then Paul goes, I thought you would argue that. So let's go to the next tier. Isaac has two sons from the same conception. They are twins. One conception, same parents, same birth. God chooses one and doesn't choose the other. 
So now, what does that mean about ethnicity and biology and family lineage? Why does God choose one and not the other? They're both Abraham's grandsons. They're both Isaac's sons born from the same womb. Why does he do it? It is a painful passage to read Romans 9 here and interpret it as God choosing to bless one person and choosing to condemn another person. That passage has been used for years as a very difficult passage to wrestle with if you read it as Jacob, the person I have loved, and Esau, the person I hated even before they were born. What kind of God would do that? Set up people to fail before they're even born. An innocent little fetus, a little baby is condemned to be damned for his whole life before he's born. Paul is not talking about individuals. This is a Western lens we put on Scripture. He's not talking about Jacob the person and Esau the person. He's talking about lineages, families, and communities. He's saying the community born from Jacob was a community that I have called and was obedient and stayed in my covenant. The community of Esau became the Edomites who were not obedient, went against my promises and my call, and I am God, and I see beginning and end, and I see Jacob's community, and I have called Jacob's community Esau community and all that the Edomites have done, I have not called them. I am working through the subset of my community that is obedient to the covenant I have given them. And all throughout, you can trace the lineage of God's covenant plan as God's covenant to love his people and God's people covenant to be obedient to God's call and plan for their life. And it moves and it pivots and it traces along those who are obedient. There are three truths we can take from this difficult passage that I think are very helpful. First one, humanity has broken creation, not God. Paul makes this argument multiple times, whether it's Romans 3, whether it's Romans 7. He is arguing throughout, we, we have broken this world, not God. And we look around and we condemn God, but really it was us all along. We brought sin into this world. We hurt one another. We hurt ourselves. We deal with the consequences of our own sin in our lives. Christmas Eve, 2014. I have Christmas Eve, do services here. Um, I'm pretty tired, and then I have to go to my family. I get to go to my family after Christmas Eve, and sometimes I'm a little frantic. All that goes into Christmas Eve as a pastor, and then all that goes into Christmas as a American is a lot of stuff on top of each other. I was really tired. I was single at the time still, and I had service, and then I had to go home, get the gifts, and then come back to my parents, and I go in the house, and I'm just rushing, and I know I'd put all the gifts in my closet, and I was like, for some reason, I was like, I'm moving so fast. I don't even want to turn the lights on. I'm going to leave the lights off. I'm just going to go in, go to the closet. I'm going to grab all the stuff. As I grab the stuff, the ironing board is in the closet as well, The ironing board falls and hits me right on the ear. And if you've ever gotten that kind of an injury, that like blow to your head, immediate pain to your ear, you know sometimes you just see white? I just saw like white rage for a second. I went, oh gosh, and I just kicked. And I put my foot through the wall of my house. In the dark, by myself, I just pointed my rage randomly. Who put the ironing board in the, I literally said, who put the ironing board here? It was me. I did it. I was like, why is it dark in here? I chose to not turn the lights on. Why is my schedule, I scheduled myself like that. This is the human condition. 
We build systems of our own suffering and brokenness and fall, and then when we walk into it, we externalize and point our anger everywhere. God, who has built a beautiful world for us, beautiful people for us, beautiful bodies made in his image that he's breathed the breath of life into, and all the destruction we have brought into this world, we then blame the creator rather than ourselves who are practicing user error and using God's good creation against his will for it. Humanity is broken creation, not God. Second, God chooses, God creates chosen communities. He doesn't elect individuals. I know there are a lot of opinions on this, but I do believe this is Paul's intent in writing this. That God doesn't elect individuals. Some people in this room, you're elect. Other people in the room, you're not. You're going to spend your whole life in church. Oh boy, it was wasted because you weren't chosen. Sorry about that. You're still going to go to hell. That is not how God works and moves. The scriptures are communal. God makes chosen communities. And he gives humans the call and the will to join those communities. Israel is a great example. Working on my master's degree, I had to write a paper on Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy 29 is a passage about God's call for the community, and it's about the next generation and the generation preceding, and that God has called them and working through them. And I wrote this paper, and I thought it was so good, and I got an A on it, but my professor said, one big thing you missed is you missed the idea that there's a third community inside of Israel that is not ethnically Jewish, but are considered Israelites. They can't own property but they are part of the community and they are part of the promise and they are part of the covenant. They aren't part of Abraham's lineage. They might be Egyptian. They might be Hittites. They might be any other community around. And they saw the beautiful community of the Israelites and they chose to join that community. He says, oddly enough, you have to go through. They were often, they had to be circumcised as an adult, not a pleasant experience, but they joined the community that God had called God creates chosen communities, and he gives humanity the opportunity to choose to be and join his communities or not. He calls communities, and he invites us to join that. He doesn't call individuals and others not. Third, God doesn't choose better people. The communities he creates are not because these people were better are not because these people were special or more moral than others. In fact, the Old Testament is a testament to the fact that the Israelites were not more moral than their neighbors. When you read Genesis, you can see that argument throughout. It is God who is good, and it's God who is merciful, and God who is gracious, and he calls those of his own will and his gracious goodness. Paul literally says it in verse 11. He calls people but not according to their good or bad works. He just calls. He didn't choose Abraham because he was a good man. He didn't stick with Israel because they were good people. Hebrews 11 seems to indicate what it is. The author of Hebrews says it's faith. It's people that were just obedient to the call. They weren't better, they just believed. They believed God was who he said he was. They believed the call of the community he was making. They believed that there was more purpose for our lives than just power, strength, and control. They believed that there was something else there and a God that was calling them, and they chose to follow Yahweh. They had faith. 
Romans 3, verse 10, Paul makes it very clear. He says, as Scripture says, he's quoting Psalm 53, no one is righteous, not even one, including God's chosen people. God doesn't choose people according to their works, but according to his own gracious and merciful will. Think about what that means for us today. God chose Jacob over Esau to carry on his family line. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He will work through you. He will empower you. He will transform you. He's given the Spirit to make you more like Christ. He's given the Spirit to make you, uh, to disciple you, grow you, pull the rough edges off, guide you, and to remind you of your love and your value. You are not called because you were powerful and equipped. He is equipping you as he calls you. For us today, we are a covenant community called by Christ. As Paul makes clear throughout this letter, it is our faith in Jesus that makes us a community. It's what makes us a family. It's his blood and his body. But it's very easy, even today, 2,000 years later or 3,000 years later from the community of Israel, to begin to say, it's our community, this is our call, this is our church, this is our vision and our story, and become a closed community. It's why the Scripture implores it so aggressively. We need to fight against that tendency. I like these people, I like what God is doing, and I just want to stay with these people. What the Gospel is continually saying is, no, the community needs to expand and grow and reach and draw others in. And the same way Israel was created as a light to demonstrate God's goodness to the communities around them and draw them to Him, the community of Christ today is doing the same thing. We are called to be a light into the world and to draw others into the community of Christ Jesus. This is such a pivotal, important, and frankly, easy week to do that. To give an invite to another person. Hey, it's kids camp. We're running kids camp. It's at night. Your kids can join. Oh, you're only free these nights? That's fine. Come out to those nights. We would love to have you, and we would love to just spend time Show the kids how valued and loved they are by their creator in Christ Jesus. Have fun with them. Have snacks. Create memories with them. They're welcome to be a part of our community. The block party. Hey, come and join. We're doing a family service. It's going to be wild. And then we're eating afterwards, playing a bunch of games. There's going to be an ice cream truck to invite people into the community that God has made and formed. The community is always meant to be growing and reaching and sharing. The thrust is not, you are special, so sit back and take it easy. It is always, God is special, so why are you taking that special relationship for granted? Honor him, love him, follow the call to share him with others. And now let's move in, Romans 9, 14 through 18. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show my mercy to anyone I choose. I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. If you've been following along or you've studied theology, 
This is another problematic passage. This is another difficult passage. Does God make it impossible for someone to receive grace and literally stand in the way of them knowing him? Or does he allow us to harden our own hearts? It's tough when you read Exodus. There are times where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. There are times where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Are they conflating the two? Is one equal to the other? Is God always doing it? Is God recognizing it? How do we understand these things? Here's what Paul is saying. Maybe ask the bigger question. Is God sending a bunch of good people to eternal death? Or is God rescuing fallen people who deserve death? How do we see it? Are we walking in as good people and God's just choosing a few and like, nope, you're going to die. Nope, you're not going to receive the love I have for you. Nope, you're not getting it. Or is it a bunch of fallen people who God has chosen to rescue some and given us all the opportunity to receive his grace and his mercy. I remember wrestling with this in a class where I had struggled with the passages of Abraham and Isaac and how they lie about their wives being their sisters and in order to trick these warlords and the warlords take their wives and God condemns them. And I'm like, it feels so unfair. At one point, it's the same guy. It happens to twice. Abraham tricks him and then his son Isaac tricks him. And both times the guy is like, God, why, what, why are you doing this to me? I didn't know any of this. And I said in the passage, I said, it feels like God is condemning this man who wasn't the one who lied, who wasn't the one who tricked. And it feels unfair that God's people keep putting this guy in this situation. And the professor said to me, oh, you feel bad for the warlord rapist who made people give their sisters over to them so he could have sex with them and that they would then have been able to pass through. You feel bad for that guy? I said, oh, that's right. He's not a good person being tricked by God. He is a fallen, broken person acting out of his fallen, broken anger and pain and disillusionment and hatred and sin and God is choosing to rescue people out of his grace. Mercy cannot be earned or controlled by humans. Mercy is given by a gracious God. He chooses to show mercy on all people. As Romans eleven thirty two 32 says, For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience, so he could have mercy on everyone. He has shown his grace as we can't, he has shown his righteousness, and as we can't, own up to the righteousness God has, that, as Paul says earlier, we feel that bondage. I just can't be good enough. I can't be righteous enough. And then he, at the perfect time, tells us about his son Jesus, shows us the grace that Jesus Christ lived out, and gives us an opportunity to be rescued. Let's see it in our last few verses, 19 through 24. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say the one who created it? Why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into it? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who are prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those 
whom he has selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Paul talks about molding clay. This is a strong Old Testament metaphor that he's using. Isaiah uses it in Isaiah 29, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 64. Jeremiah uses it in Jeremiah 18. The idea of God molding humanity as a potter molds clay. On my recent trip to Turkey, I got to see a family that makes pottery and get to see them in the process of how they do it, how they mold it together and how they work it. And they have this little stone and they spin it themselves. And then that's just it. There's no power to it. And then they mold it as it spins around. One of the things that they said and showed us is you can mold something really beautifully. And if you mess it up, you just smash it back down and you start over again. You start over again, and you start over again, and you mold again, and you mold again until you make it right, until you get it right. Paul's saying, think of the kingdom of Israel and think of the Old Testament as a potter with clay. He's gently trying to mold them to be who he's made them to be. He's nudging them. He's pushing them. He's shaping them throughout the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law, throughout the prophets speaking into them. He's trying to mold throughout kings and laws. He's trying to mold and to guide them to be the image bearers. But Paul also says every potter at some point has to smash the vase back down in order to make it back up. Paul's saying this is the exile. This is the kingdom of Israel thrown out of their land. God smashed it back down. They had to be humbled by it to mold it back up. He's saying this is what Christ is now. He's the perfect molded vessel. We have a chance to be molded in that same image. Abraham, molding. Patriarchs, molding. Egypt, molding break that pot down, mold it back up again. Israel, molding. David, molding. Prophets, molding. Exile, break that pot down, mold it back up again. God is shaping and moving human history with his hands. And that shaping and moving, we sometimes feel like is condemnation or is anger. And it is not. It is God's will and way of shaping us to be who he has always meant us to be as humanity made in his image. And Paul uses this beautiful extension now into the metaphor. He says, now, pottery can be remade over and over again, but it cannot be remade once it is put into the fire and is burned. It comes out a finished product. And you cannot, under any amount of effort, any amount of water, remold that back. It has chemically changed. It is permanently that. Paul is saying to them, the call of Christ is that kiln, is that fire, is that burn. You either choose it or you don't. You either choose to be molded into his presence or you don't. And once we lose that, once we leave this world, once we do not make that decision, he said the chance is now not there to be remolded. Paul's talking about Israel and Israel's history. That is what the text is about. But I think there is encouragement for us as followers of Jesus today who are being molded by the living Spirit of God. He molds us. He gently shapes us. At times, I have felt in my life, He has broken me back down to reshape me back up again. You may go through those periods of your life, molded, shaped, broken back down, molded, shaped again. 
I would give you an encouragement. You can continue to be molded. You can continue to be remade all until the moment of the resurrection. When we close our eyes on this earth, we trust into God's hands now as he moves the process of permanently placing us in who we are called to be, whether we've called on the name of Jesus or whether we haven't. But in this world, we are molded and molded and molded and molded by his spirit. I want to give us two opportunities today. The first is that you may feel like you're in a process of being molded. Maybe you don't know Jesus or maybe you feel like that image of him is, is really far. The molding process that God uses is his word, is Jesus. We know Jesus mostly through the scriptures that have been compiled for us. And the regular reading and study of letters like Romans are what teach us about Jesus and mold us to be like him. We are able to pray directly to God because of the spirit Jesus has given us. And God molds us through our time of listening to his voice in his presence. We are molded by the community he has placed around us, by one another, our small groups, our time together, praying at the altar for one another. We are molded and we are shaped to be like Jesus. And every moment of our life until we close our eyes on this earth are moments and opportunities for God to mold us to be like Jesus. We'll open the altars in a moment. You can come receive prayer. We will pray over you. We will help mold one another in the process. And then the second thing is, we are not a closed community. We are the community began in Abraham, called down through Christ. We are grafted into that community by Jesus. And we have the call to keep grafting others and sharing them in and welcoming them into the kingdom. You have, we have, multiple opportunities this week to take part in sharing that invite, sharing this community, of offering others the goodness of the Jesus we serve. As Mark writes it, to come and see what God is doing, to come and see the beauty of Jesus. If you'll stand with me, if you can, all over the room. I'll invite you to pray with me. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this can be a first step of prayer of in that relationship of knowing him or taking a step forward of meeting Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, use this as an opportunity just to recommit, declare it again of who Jesus is in your life. Pray with me. Jesus, in this moment, I see you as Savior, as friend, as God that you have formed this community by your very body and blood. You have taken the punishment that should be ours and you have exchanged it for the righteousness and for the promises that are yours. Eternal life, relationship with the Father, and love and value unending. Jesus, I believe you are God and man, fully both, and you lived on this earth. You showed us the way of righteousness. You taught us the way of love and grace. You lived a life without sin. And then on the cross, you chose to take our sin upon yourself, our brokenness and unrighteousness upon yourself, and you died for our punishment and sin. 
And on the third day, you resurrected, conquering our sin and our death. And that by believing in you, we exchange our sin for your righteousness, our death for your life. Jesus, will you be our Savior? Will you be our God? Will you be our friend? May we know you and receive what is rightfully yours, the promise of eternal life and reconnection with the Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to just give you a moment to respond. Our prayer team will be up here on the left and the right. We'd be glad to pray with you or pray over you. The altar space will be open. Sometimes it helps to take a or make a physical demonstration of what God is doing or working in our lives. Whether that's stepping out of your seat or coming to an altar space, you have block party invite cards on chairs around you. I would just invite you to just hold that in your hand, take a step of faith forward and just pray, like, I'm going to give this to somebody. God has a plan to graft somebody else in to his community, to his love and grace this week. Hold on to that. Or if you this morning are like, I need to be remolded. I need a moment of being remade like Jesus. I need a moment of being reshaped by his spirit. We would love to just pray with you, lay a hand on you. The altar is open to pray and commit to invite others in or to come and respond to be shaped more like Jesus this morning. Lord, we invite you in. We pray this altar time is open. May we respond to you as the team leads us in one final song. We open this space for you to shape us, mold us, and make us more like you, Jesus. We pray this in your name.